Welcome to A Canadian Investing in the U.S., a podcast and YouTube channel focused on Canadians buying real estate with host Glenn Sutherland. Welcome to another episode of A Canadian Investing in the U.S. This week, my guest is uh, Dion McNeely. Um, Dion, let's tell them first, a little, maybe a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your story or how, who you are, and uh, just so they have a bit of an intro, and then we're going to jump into some meat this week. We're going to teach people stuff which is my favorite. <laughs> I love uh, I love stories, but I, I love like to, to have some teaching, to teaching material too. <laughs> Howdy, Glenn. Hi. Um, I, appreciate, I appreciate you having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. I like sharing my story because I think as investors, it's the stories we identify with. Most of us can understand the math of buying cash flowing assets, buys our financial freedom. But when you hear somebody else that has a similar story or some trouble that you've dealt with yourself, it's a little easier to think, oh, if they can do it, I can do it. Yeah. So. Here's the Cliff Notes version of my story. Yeah. About 10 years ago, I uh, got divorced, was a single parent with three kids, found out about $89,000 in bad debt in my name that I didn't know about until the divorce. Um, got laid off from a police department because of the recession in 2008. Um, after Desert Storm in the Marine Corps, I kind of got pushed out because the Marine Corps downsized. So I got tired of my sources of income being taken away due to things outside of my control. Mm -hmm. I looked around and my brother retired on rentals. He has 10 paid off rentals and I have a friend that has 30 units. And I thought, well, rentals, this must be the way to go. So with no training, no education, no podcast, no books, no, no research at all. Um, I moved into an apartment and rented out my house. I, I, I had a bad debt to income ratio because I had the $89,000 in debt that I didn't know about. I got laid off from the police department. So I started teaching how to drive trucks at a truck driving school for $17 an hour. So I couldn't just buy a rental but I rented out the house. And since I had no education, I rented to somebody with a handshake without a lease. Um, I had no systems in place whatsoever. I made every mistake you could think of. I rented to a friend because who can trust a stranger? I mean, if there was a list of things you don't do, I was checking each one off. So that first year went horrible. Um, rent got late, then became never. Uh, when I went to the house to have a conversation of, hey, you know, you haven't paid the rent, I found out he didn't even live there. He had moved out, rented the house to someone else, was collecting the rent and keeping it. So I was just this horrible experience of getting into rentals. I thought I would quit. I tried to quit. I tried to give the house away. But luckily, because of the housing crash of 2008, I was, in, I was underwater on the mortgage. I owed more on the house than what I could um, sell it for. So I kept it. Finally got a good tenant in there. About the two-year mark, I started investing in small multifamily. I do a, what's called house hacking, you know, where you buy a duplex. My first one was a duplex, 5% down conventional loan, which aren't really an option now, but you can still do FHA at 3.5. Yeah. Moved into one side, rented out the other. Two years later, bought another one. Two years later, a little less than two years later, bought another one. And once I got to about seven units, I was financially free. I was making more money off seven units than when I was making when I was a police officer. Seven, seven units or seven buildings? Seven units. So I had, That's I had awesome. That's awesome. properties, yeah. one house, three duplexes, at, at about the six-year mark, I focused and paid off the single-family house. This was in the 2015-16 era yep. when lend, lenders were letting you have four mortgages. They're letting you have 10 now, but the large lenders like Wells Fargo, Bank of America back then were saying four was a good limit. So I got to four, and then I paid one off. Once the cash flow increased from paying it off, I was making $2,700 a month in profit, living for free without a mortgage. And when I was a police officer, I was making $2,600 a month to take home and had a mortgage. Yeah. So that was, it was really quick. I mean, six years, eight years or so to reach financial freedom. I'm at a little over 10 years now. I have 16 units because this thing called the income snowball kicked in in the last couple of years where cash flow from multiple units 
my job got better over the years. I'm now the president of the company and part owner. So I've, I'm not just an instructor anymore. I've kind of worked my way down into the office. Um, appreciation, principal pay down. I refinanced two loans at, at a lower interest rate to incre increase cash flow. I actually have a strategy that gets tenants to request a rent increase and longer leases. That's actually the strategy that got me invited on Bigger Pockets. So I was on episode 448 to share that strategy with people. Um, and so that's gonna write that down. who I am, where I started, <laughs> and where I'm at now. Okay, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna watch that tomorrow, 448. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Awesome. I love it. Okay, so um let's get into it then. So you were planning a podcast and I was interested in your topic. Let's let's take it from there and then I'll I'll try to let you go and I'll maybe interrupt with some questions as I come up. <laughs> so yeah, uh cash on cash return versus cash on equity return. Let let's get into it. Right. So some people say they invest for cash flow. Some people say they invest for appreciation. I think investing for appreciation is a type of gambling. Cash flow, you have a little more control of, and it's a little easier to predict. The problem with investing for appreciation is that the difference between cash on cash return yep. and internal rate of return. Yep. Cash on cash return is annual profit divided by cost to acquire. Annual profit is your rent after principal interest taxes and insurance and setting aside for capex vacancies and maintenance what's left every month times 12 is your annual profit cost to acquire is not just your down payment it's down payment closing costs and cost to make rent ready or immediate repairs so that's how you figure out your cost your um cash on cash, cash return on, yeah it's, it's a little easier to do because you really just have to know the price of the property the interest rate you're paying and what the area average rents are. Studying the area average rents is key. Once you know your market, it's a lot easier to get your cash on cash return. Yep. An internal rate of return, it's very hard to predict going forward because appreciation is an unknown. Appreciation and principal pay down can disappear. People found that out in 2008 when all of a sudden prices dropped below, they had no equity. Yep. So investing for appreciation, to, in my opinion, is a mistake. So I've invested for cash flow, but we do benefit from appreciation when it happens. Yes. Like in 2020, most of us in, across the United States uh, saw an average appreciation of 16%. Here in Washington state, it was 24%. In Seattle, Seattle, which is in the center of the state, yep. uh, they had over 30%, like San Diego had 30%. So some markets have had massive appreciation. Yep. So we don't count on it, but when it happens, it's amazing. Yes. So cash on cash return, my rentals are doing really well. First year, my goal is to get a 10% cash on cash return. So if I spend $100,000 to acquire a property, that property is going to profit at least $10,000 next year. That's the goal. That's my, my lowest metric that I want to hit. And so that's kind of based on your market. In my market, a 6 or 7% is kind of average. So I shoot for 10. So I'm buying the great deals. If your area is a 3 or 4, shoot for 7. You just want to look for the best deals in your area. Yeah. Um, cash on equity is with appreciation and principal pay down we have more money in our properties than what it cost us to acquire it so when we first make our down payment or, or our cost to acquire the property that 10 percent in first year is pretty good yeah. but the next year rents usually go up every couple of years especially with my strategy that gets tenants to request a rent increase 
And the mortgages, for the most part, stay the same. You might have insurance and taxes increase a little, but they're not going up as much as rents are. So your cash on cash return every year going forward gets better and better and better. Yes. It's been decades since rents have gone down. Even in 2009, when the housing crash happened from 2008, a lot of the people that had the foreclosures, which was one of the, the factors that contributed to that, became renters, which increased demand. So rents went up in my area in 2010, 11, and 12. Yep. I didn't really start investing until about 2011, so I didn't get to see that, that first couple of years of that. But appreciation is outpacing rent increases. Even though this year we're seeing like 20 to 30% rent increases, appreciation is passing that up with adding principal pay down. So I, I have a house where I'm getting a 10% cash on cash return. Five years later, if I sold it, and I, I would make hundreds of thousands of dollars to put to work again for another 10% return. So that's the cash on equity isn't as good because I'm not putting the equity to work unless you recycle capital. So you have a few options. The first one is to sell. With the 1031 exchange, you can avoid capital gains hits. You're going to have a 6% agent fee for most transactions. So you're going to pay some money for this transaction. Yeah. But you sell, take that money and put it in, into a more expensive property. Another option is to take out a home, home equity line of credit and put some of that equity to work. Another one is to do a cash out refinance. And for me, this makes more sense if you have an existing mortgage, especially if the cash out refinance has a better interest rate, because not only do you take care of that first mortgage at a better interest rate, but then you pull the money out. Yeah. So there's different ways to take the money and put it to work, which I've never done. Okay. And I'm, I'm on the channel, One Rental at a Time, a YouTube channel. Uh, he's an author with a couple of books, yeah. One Rental at a Time, and 15 Conversations with Real Estate Millionaires. And the lumberjack landlord and both of them have much bigger portfolios than i do i mean uh, one rental at a time is approaching 200 the lumberjack landlord is approaching 100 and i'm sitting at 16 units so i listen to them yeah. and a bit of peer pressure is involved but they're convincing me to recycle capital and look at doing a cash out refinance on my paid off property because while my return on what i paid for that property is really good it's not good if i look at the amount of equity in there so I paid, this was my first property. It was a single yep. family house in 2000, way before I was an investor. Yeah. I paid $121,000. So it's, it's rented out now for $2,200 a month. I'm getting a great return on that house. Yeah. But if I sold it, it's worth 400,000. So cash you, on cash. You have to factor that in, yeah. Cash on equity, I'm not making the best decision by not putting that money to work. Right. And I, what, what, where, where he's trying to go with this is the, the return on equity is zero. When that money that you have in those properties, it isn't returning anything. And do you think you could make better than a 0% interest rate by doing something else with it? <laughs> right. Um, if I took $400,000 out and I use my investing strategy where so far my worst deal was a 10% cash on cash return, that's $40,000 a year. That I would be making that I'm not making now on that property. I, it, it, yeah. At what it's making now, it's making about eighteen thousand in profit. So I would double what it's making by putting the money to work somewhere else. Yeah, and you could say you refinanced it and you pulled it out, so you're going to pay an interest rate on it. But the interest rates are record lows right now, um, and you you could private lend it. Like there's so many things you could do with this money. You could buy more properties. You could, depending like with yours with the, the three hundred thousand, you could buy even some small apartments, right? With Correct. So there's and, and so one of the reasons why people should watch channels like yours 
is if you hang out with people who aren't investors, we would never think of things like this. The only reason I'm looking at putting my money to work in a better place is because I'm interacting with investors who do more investing than I do. Yeah. The whole premise of uh, steel sharpens steel. You've yeah. got to be interacting with people who do more than you so that you're trying to catch up. And so watching a channel like this, people who are just starting out, maybe haven't got their first deal yet, they're looking for the real basics. The, the more they watch this, the more this just becomes second nature and the more likely they are to take action because to take action, you have to be confident, right? Yeah. And confidence comes from competence. Once you study, you become competent. That's when the confidence kicks in. You're preaching to the choir. Whenever I was you know, moving to going from investing in Canada to investing in the US. I just went and embraced like listening to podcasts, American podcasts, and you just heard it and you heard it and you heard it and it, then someone asked you about it and it came off your tongue because you just, you've heard the same thing a hundred times and then you felt confident and then you're like, I can do this. I can do this. And you're going to figure some stuff out. You're going to have some bumps, but it, it, it is, it's exactly what you just said. It gives you the, the courage to go do this. One of the things that really helped me a lot was answering questions. I, I started my YouTube channel in, in January of 2021. So it's fairly new. It's, it's kind of a young channel. Yeah. But before that, in the Facebook groups, like the Real Estate Rookie and the Bigger Pockets official Facebook group, questions would come up. And I would think, oh, I'll answer that question. And I didn't know what I was talking about. So people would pounce on me and go, oh, you're, that's great. But here's the five other reasons why what you're saying is actually wrong. So I realized I needed to do research. So I studied, I watched podcasts, I took in audiobooks, stuff like One Rental at a Time or Set for Life, uh, different uh, tons of bigger pockets audiobooks. And now when somebody asks a question, I know here's the answer, but I also know all of the ways, all of the things I also need to say so that I don't get pounced on. So now, 10 years ago, if somebody said, what do you want to invest in? I would say, well, I want to buy rentals that make money. Now I actually have a specific criteria that I can tell an agent in less than 30 seconds so they know exactly what to look for. I, um, I have criteria that help me limit tenant turnover, help me diversify my portfolio because I'm 100% invested in real estate. I don't have any stocks. Uh, if somebody gave me stocks, I would sell them and buy real estate. <laughs> so my portfolio needs to be diversified. I, I've diversified the properties and the tenant base. I keep one third with the Section 8 program, one third military, one third working and retired so that my portfolio can handle a prolonged government shutdown, a pandemic, a stock market crash. So in 2020, where a lot of people were nervous, my portfolio was designed for events like that. So I wasn't nervous. I actually added two properties in 2020. I only, I've only added one in 2021, but I've saved up enough to where my goal is that my next purchase is a fourplex that costs over a million dollars. Because something I learned about halfway through my investing is that I wish my properties cost more money. <laughs> and most investors would think that's weird when they're first starting out. Yeah. But if I'm getting a 10% yield, a 10% yield on a $100,000 purchase price isn't as attractive as a $250,000 purchase price. You know, adding $25,000 a year to my income is better than 10. And it's the same amount of work to buy one rental for $100,000 of my own money or 250. It's the same amount of work. So once the income snowball kicks in and you could save the down payments sooner, my goal is to buy bigger. Um, the, the yield has to scale. I'm not going to buy bad deals, yeah. but a great deal that costs more money than I would have ever been comfortable with spending before. Because I used to think of it as spending. I used the wrong word. 
when we yeah. buy an investment property, we're not actually spending anything. No. We're buying rental properties by taking money from the bank and moving it into the property. We're not spending that investment. It's still there. You can sell, cash out, refinance, HELOC. That money's still yours. It's just working for you now instead of sitting in a bank losing value. Oh, I'm going to step back a little bit. You mentioned when you were splitting your portfolio up that one third of it was going into military tenants. Um, when I was investing in Huntsville, Alabama, I fell backwards and got a military tenant in there. But is there, like you said, to get a third of it, how do you get military tenants? So that's a great question. And I'm glad you clarified because anytime I bring it up, other investors who are smart try to warn me and say, hey, fair housing laws, you can't discriminate. You can't run an ad saying section eight only or military only, right? You can't, yeah. you can't do that. And they're right. But you can control how you advertise. If I have a unit that's opening up next month and I'm low on my section eight tenants and I want to get it back up towards that one third, I call the housing authority and I tell the agents, I said, hey, here's the link to my ad. It's going to come out Tuesday at noon. Share this with your clients. I'm going to get a section eight tenant. If I want a military person because they're the ratio that's low, on, <clears throat> call the military installation that's closest to where you invest at. Ask for MWR, that's Morale, Welfare and Recreation. They probably don't handle the housing on your installation, but they know who does. So in my area, there's a housing authority for the base. I call them and I say, please list this. If you advertise on the base, you're probably going to get a military tenant. So I control how I advertise, not how I screen. And it's yeah. it's an average. It's not a perfect science. No. If I want a Section 8 tenant and I get a Section 8 applicant and a working or retired applicant, but they came in first, the, the first one that's qualified based well, on the, yeah. the, the legal requirements of the area you're investing in is who gets the property. But so far, it's tracking really close to where I advertise is what I get. That's interesting. And I love that. That could have been the whole show on its own. I learned <laughs> something there. And, and I, awesome. I love it. I love it. No, um, because that's one of the things too. Like uh there is lots of military bases around. Um, and it is similar to people always are all about section eight, section eight, section eight. But basically by renting military tenants as well, it is guaranteed rent. Well, they it's you have guaranteed rent because they have guaranteed income. But BAH is based on the area average. So a Section 8 and the base, rents just go up because of organizations make changes. And it's really nice. I was in the Marines. And when you rent a place, which I did, I was a single parent in the Marines, so I was renting a place off base. Military people have a chain of command. If they're ever late on the rent or have a noise complaint or the police go to their unit too many times, you don't have to evict. You call their chain of command and their boss basically pulls them in and says, here's your list of items you need to fix. I've never had to do that, but I remember when I was in the military, that was always hanging above my head. So I yeah. made sure I was a good tenant. I've never had a problem. My section eight tenants and my military tenants, I have never had a problem. The only problems I've ever had with tenants is the friend that I rented to in the beginning and one young couple that I've basically had to kind of educate and say, this is an emergency. We have fire, flood, blood. This is when you call me anytime after five o'clock. If it's your dishwasher <laughs> is a little bit loose, that's an email. <laughs> yeah. Right. Stuff oh, like that. Have you had any problems with the inspections for Section 8? So I actually, I have a, a video on my channel on how to um, speed up an inspection with Section 8. So okay. actually, I'm just going through it right now. I actually have a letter <laughs> here. They gave me a few things. Uh, the tenants somehow got rid of a carbon monoxide detector and a seal on a door is broken from a dog, so I've got to fix it. So they came and they did an inspection. They give you a list and they say, hey, by this date, we need to know that you fixed it and then we're gonna come back and inspect. 
once the tenant's in there and it's your tenant, timeline really doesn't matter. But when you buy a property or you have a vacancy and you're trying to put a tenant in there and you want to get it approved for Section 8, here's the hack. The, the inspectors are busy. They have a lot of clients, right? They have a lot of landlords. They have a lot of tenants. They're doing a lot of inspections. When they do the first inspection and they tell me something like carbon monoxide detector is missing and the seal on the door is bad, I'm going to replace them and take a video, email it to the inspector and say, here is proof that the problem was fixed. So they don't have to schedule a second inspection. So that cuts out two to three weeks of communication with them because then they send back an email saying, you are resolved. You know what? That's genius. Because <laughs> I, 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 I went through this exact same times. thing. Yeah, no, I went through this exact same thing with back and forth and waiting, waiting for these tenants to get in the property. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Uh, Dion, I'm trying to, I'll talk to you. I, I think I could pick your brain for another hour. I'm going to try and keep these episodes at a certain level. <laughs> no, we got to keep them short and yeah, we could do another one another day on a different topic. Totally let's, works. Let's, for me. let's come back in like six months and do another one. I, I, and I'm going to go and listen to 448 and I'm going to check your channel out. I might have a new subscriber. Um, Dion, um, tell us about your channel, how people find you, direct them to yourself. So it's right here on YouTube. Dion Talk Financial Freedom. I try to release two or three videos a week. Tuesday evenings, I do a live stream for two to three hours, depending on how many questions there are. Wow. So a lot of people have reached out and said, hey, do you do coaching? Do you, do you do private coaching? And what would be the cost of that? Show up Tuesday in the evenings for free. I answer every question that comes my way. Love it. Thank you for coming on the show, Dion. A uh, lot of value. A lot of value. I don't even know what I'm going to call this show because we're talking about cash on cash versus equity, military tenants, section eight. There's a lot of different ways we went here. It's really, uh, really awesome. Um, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No, thanks a lot for having me, Glenn.